Hollywood Community Church exists to shine as light in our homes, in our community, and in our world. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Well, I've got a confession to make to you guys today. Uh, my confession is that I shop on eBay. Uh, anybody here want to acknowledge that they maybe do that too? Um, okay, a few people, thank you. Uh, no hands went up early. It made me feel um, really alone up here, so I appreciate that. But I, you know, my, my most recent bout with eBay actually began um, a few weeks ago when my dad bought some new golf clubs. And when he bought new golf clubs, he didn't want his old golf clubs, and he gave me those clubs uh, to do something with. I could keep them, I could sell them, whatever. Um, and so what I ended up doing was I was able to take my clubs that I had and his clubs that he gave me, and both of those clubs are like 20 years old, and I was able to sell those on eBay and upgrade into something a little bit newer. And, and I was excited about that because I like to play golf, and you know, when you think about what you do on eBay, that's really a lot what it is. And this giant garage sale, that uh, the, this world's garage sale on eBay, you can go from a club that looks like this, which, you know, that's a fine club. It's, it's you know, from 1985, but it's a fine club. And you can go all the way to something like this. Now, bigger is better, I think, in golf. Um, and so, you know, I was excited to be able to, to upgrade through eBay from the old to the new. And, and the, the thought process is that this will somehow help my golf game. I, I have a feeling that I won't be able to hit either of these, but this will look better in my bag at least. And, and that's, that's kind of what we do on eBay is we sell our old stuff and we try to upgrade to some new stuff. I don't know if, if you, your experience has been the same with, with this website, but it has been for mine. Now, when you think about the, the implications of that in other areas, I was just thinking about my experience on eBay this last week, and I thought of a very tragic reality, and that is that oftentimes we, when it comes to having Jesus Christ be the Lord of our lives, we eBay our faith. We eBay our faith. We, we go into the marketplace of the world and we sell out our God in order to upgrade to something we think that we'll like better. Now, if that sounds like a crude analogy, if that makes you a little bit uncomfortable, you know it probably should. And yet this is something that we, that we do. It's something that I do. Uh, and when we think of what it looks like when we eBay our faith, it looks like when we want our wisdom and not his. It looks like when we want the approval of others and not rest in how he assesses us. It's when we exchange or, or sell out you know, our integrity in, in following his will for, for our own desires. When we do those things, we engage in this process of kind of eBaying our faith, selling out our God for someone else's junk. And you know, the, the, the consequences of that are serious and the consequences of that are tragic, especially for a group of people like us who God has blessed with so much, so much experience, so much knowledge of, of him, um, so much understanding of what he's done in history, 
Um, how is it that we can be people who have done this? And yet we do it. And you know what? I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to me. And this morning, we're going to see a passage in God's word from the book of Jeremiah, chapter 2, verses 9 to 13, that will shed a little light on how this plays out in our lives and will give us some encouragement about why it's always a bad trade to try to upgrade, to try to sell out our God for someone else's junk. And we're going to see that in a message that I've entitled, The Tale of the Broken Bucket. Uh, from Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 9 to 13. So if you've got a Bible, open up to Jeremiah 2. It's kind of right in the middle, just past the Psalms. You get into the big prophets with lots of chapters in them. Uh, keep turning to the right until you get to the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a prophet. That means that God called him early in his life. When Jeremiah was only about 20 years old, God said, Jeremiah, i got a new job for you. And that job is, you're gonna, I'm going to speak to you, and then you're going to go and open your mouth and speak my words to my people. Jeremiah was called to deliver God's message to the nation of Judah. See, the, the nation of Israel had, had split into two parts, a northern part known as Israel and a southern part known as Judah. And Jeremiah the prophet was God's spokesman to that southern part of God's people known as Judah. And Jeremiah just so happened to be God's spokesman at a very difficult time in the nation of Israel. As a matter of fact, Jeremiah was God's spokesman at a time when he consistently and continually had to deliver bad news to God's people. And so when we look at the book of Jeremiah, what we see over and over again, and with a couple of exceptions, is Jeremiah calling God's people away from their error and back to the truth. And we're going to see in Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 9 to 13, that, that God's people had wandered and made some bad decisions, decisions that unfortunately we probably can relate to. So let's look at Jeremiah 2, 9 to 13. Now we're going to see about three things today, uh, the first of which is this. The first thing we're going to see is that it didn't take 10. It didn't take 10. Now, What is it that I'm trying to communicate when I say that? Um, God gave 10 things to his people Israel. What were they? The Ten Commandments, right? See, God had initiated his relationship with the people, uh, with the Jewish people, with the nation of Israel, while they were held captive in the land of Egypt. And God called them out, and through miraculous events, he brought them out of the nation of Egypt And then as he brought them out, he established a covenant with them that was made up of various laws where God was communicating the path to godly living. God was setting them apart as a people by showing them his way. And part of the way that God did that was he gave them 10 specific commandments that we know of as the Ten Commandments. And so Moses goes up on the mountain and God transcribes for him 10 commandments. The first of those commandments that God gives is found in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 3, and that is that you will have no other gods before me. God said, I don't want to compete for your allegiance. I want you to have only one God, and that's going to be me, the God that brought you out of the land of Egypt, the God that parted the sea so that you could walk through on dry land, the God that 
told you about the Passover, that you could mark your doorframe so that your children would live, even though the children of Egypt did not. See, God said, I don't want to compete for your allegiance. And so I'm going to give you a set of commandments that will, that will, that will talk about how we'll relate. And the first one I'm going to tell you is, you'll have no other gods before me. Now, what's interesting over in the New Testament is we find out that in the book of Galatians that one of the purposes of the law was to be a tutor for us, to lead us to Christ. I believe that the implication of that is that one of the purposes of the law was to show Israel of their need. It was to show Israel of their sinfulness, to show them that they were in need of a Savior that God would eventually provide in Christ. So if one of the purposes of the law is to show that we are sinful, that's why I say that it didn't take 10. It takes only one. The first commandment reveals our sinfulness. God says, have no other gods before me to Moses. Moses no sooner gets, is down from the mountain than God's people had formed a golden calf and were worshiping it. God's people had a history of leaving him and pursuing worship of other gods. That was true in the old days of Israel, and sadly in Jeremiah's day, it was true of the nation of Judah at the time of Jeremiah as well. They were leaving their God, and they were pursuing a worship of him in in other ways. And we find that in verses 9 to 12. This is what it says in verse 9. God is is upset with his people, and he says in verse 9, Therefore I still contend with you, declares the Lord, and with your children's children I will contend. There was something that they were doing that was making God upset, and it was something that was making him upset that would impact not only this current generation of Israel, but it was going to have consequences that would impact the next. God had made a a covenant with his people, and he said, if you keep this covenant, I'll protect your borders, but if you forsake it, then I will discipline you by having other nations come in and take you over. And when God says this contention that he has with them will impact future generations, what he's saying is not only will you be carted off into other lands, but your children will have to grow up there as well. Their error, their sinfulness was so serious, it would impact not only their lives, but the lives of their kids. God was so upset about this, if we jump down to verse 12, God actually is looking for someone to to acknowledge the horror of Israel's apostasy, and he calls on nature itself to experience some shock, some awe, and some sadness. Verse 12, be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. Well, what was it that Israel had done that, that God was going to have impact not only them but the next generation? What is it that Israel had done that God would call upon the heavens to, to mourn? Well, they had wandered away from him. Verse 10 and 11 tell us this. It says, For cross the coast to the, of Cyprus and see, or send to Cater and examine with care. See if there has ever been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. See, what God is saying is, look around at these pagan nations. They don't even have real gods, and they don't change their gods. Generation after generation, they're following this this statue. They're, They're bowing down to a sun god who can provide nothing for them. 
They don't change their ways, but, but why is it, O oh people of God, that, that you are wandering away from the God who parted the sea and had you walk through on dry land? Why is it that you are wandering away from him? Why is it that you're exchanging your glory, the thing that has made you famous, the thing that has established you in this land? Why are you walking away from him to pursue other gods? It's incredulous to imagine in this situation that they would be doing that when we just read it as a story. Um, In light of everything they had seen, including the, the events in Israel's history, including the possession of God's word, including even recently just seeing God discipline the the northern kingdom of Israel for their disobedience. In light of all of those things, how is it that they could still wander away in the nation of Judah? I want to hit pause on that for a moment. And before we, we spend time thinking about how silly and stupid and what a terrible exchange they made, we need to hit pause and we need to think about our own lives. We need to think about our own hearts. Because the problem of God's people exchanging him, eBaying him for something newer, something that does not profit, someone else's junk, um, did not die with the nation of Judah in Jeremiah's day. It's something that continues on today. And, and you know, we've just gotten better at disguising it. You know, back in the old days, there was an agricultural world. Um, people would bow down to the sun god because if the sun didn't come up, and they would bow down to the rain god because if the rains didn't come down, the crops wouldn't grow and they wouldn't have provision for their people. They were very tied into those kinds of things, so their worship was tied into those kinds of things. But we today are much more insulated from that type of worship, and yet we still struggle with turning things into idols We still struggle with the first commandment. We still struggle with having God be the priority of our life. Tim Keller, in his great book, Counterfeit Gods, uh, talks about our propensity to create idols. And what he calls an idol is anything that is a good thing that we have made into an ultimate thing. You know, in in our world, we, we get very good at taking something that is good and making it priority over our entire life. Think about the good things that we we have in our lives that we turn into ultimate things. Things like stuff. We like stuff. I mean, think of everything that falls under that category of stuff. You got, you got money, you got security, you got the, the IRA, you got the house, you've got the things that that provides, vehicles and, and uh, education, all of these things that, that, that stuff provides for us. Um, those are not bad things. As a matter of fact, those are good things. God has placed us in a physical world. We, we need physical things, and we use physical things every day. But what happens when we take a good thing and we make it an ultimate thing? What happens when we take stuff and we make it our God? That's when we'll do anything and we'll compromise our values and we'll disobey God in order to increase our stuff. We'll, we'll do things in our business that we know are wrong, but we do because it will increase our bottom line. We conceal things so that we can, in a white-collar way, steal from our family or from others, from the government here on tax weekend. See, when, when stuff, a good thing, becomes an ultimate thing, we sacrifice all else to obey it, even if it means disobeying God. What are some other things? How about love? 
Who doesn't like love? We love love. We write music about love. We, we want love. We want acceptance. We want approval. But what happens when we take that good thing of love and we make it an ultimate thing? It has tragic consequences. We, one of the expressions of this is when we begin to look at the approval of others as the dominant thing that marks our life. And we will choose to obey God or disobey God insofar as it's the popular thing to do in the world in which we live. Um, If it's popular, I'll do it because my God is not the God of the Bible. My God is the approval of others. We'll do things in certain ways because we want the approval of our boyfriend or our girlfriend or our husband or our wife or this group of friends or that group of friends. Because they are our God, not the God of the Bible. We have taken this good thing and we've made it an ultimate thing, and it has tragic results. How about experience? There are many wonderful things to experience in this life, but when we take that good thing of experience and we make it an ultimate thing, we say, I'll do whatever I need to do in order to have fun, even if that means disobeying God's will. I think that this is so much of what happens in the lives of people in the sexual area. They want to pursue an experience. This is what happens in the the realm of of illicit drug use. I want to feel better. When those good things become an ultimate thing, we'll end up disobeying God in order to get it. Not trusting in God's provision for sex within marriage, but going outside of that, whether it's pornography or extramarital affair or a premarital affair sleeping with someone who is not your spouse. This is what happens when we take a good thing and we make it an ultimate thing. It causes us to violate the first commandment. And and lest we shake our finger at the book of Jeremiah and the people of Judah, we need to realize that their problem is our problem. Uh, 17th century English preacher um, David Clarkson says this. He says, though few will own it, Nothing is more common, speaking of our struggle with idols. He says, if we think of our soul as a house, idols are set up in every room, in every faculty. As Keller quotes this in his book, he makes the statement that our hearts are idol factories. And you know what? That's not just true of the people of Israel. That's something that's true of us. It's something that's true of me. And so when I say that, I I just want to challenge us to think through right now This morning, before any more time goes on in our lives, in what ways, in what areas are we eBaying out our God? We're selling him out for someone else's junk. We're trading our allegiance to him for allegiance to stuff or to love or to experience. See, this was Israel's problem, but this is our problem as well. And What's fascinating is that Jeremiah, after he calls God's people out for this problem, uh, makes this statement to them in verse 13. He basically says, it is always, it is always, always, always a bad trade. It's bad to trade a living spring for a broken bucket. It is always bad to trade a living spring for a broken bucket. Look at what it says in verse 13. God is is speaking through Jeremiah to his people. He says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewed out cisterns for themselves, 
broken cisterns that can hold no water. See, what he was saying was it's a bad trade because God, if we rest in him, if we find ourselves in him, he will provide for what we need. But when we go outside of that relationship, we end up finding ourselves compromised and in spots that are not good for us because nothing else can satisfy us the way that that, that God can. And he uses to, to describe this, this picture of a living fountain or of a cistern. Um, a living fountain would be like a spring of fresh water coming up out of the ground. Some of you went to the, the father-son or father-daughter camp out last uh, spring, last April, coming up again at the end of this month. Went up to Roman Nose Park. There's a, a spot where water is just gushing out of the ground there. I saw pictures of you guys playing in it. It looked a lot of fun. Um, that's an example of, a, of, of some living water. It's, it's water that is springing forth. It's good to drink. It's fresh. It's clean. It's cool. Compare that to a source of water that would be from a cistern. A cistern would be a large bucket that would, they would construct in order to catch rain as it falls. And in, in a place like the Middle East, in Palestine, where water is a precious commodity, um, that was a very unreliable water source. First of all, you could get cracks in that cistern and the water could run out and you'd have no water. Second of all, it could not rain for a while and there could be no water in your cistern. Third of all, the water could taste really terrible because it's just sitting around stagnant all day, gathering mosquitoes and disease and whatever else. Uh, There was a a man named W.H. Thompson who wrote of the Middle East and and of the situation with water, and this is what he said. It's fascinating. He says, the best cisterns, even those in solid rock, are strangely liable to crack and are a most unreliable source of supply of that absolutely indispensable article, water. And if by constant care they are made to hold yet the water collected from clay roofs or from marley soil has the color of weak soap suds, the taste of the earth or the stable, is full of worms, and in the hour of greatest need, it utterly fails. Who but a fool positive or one God mad in love of filth would exchange the sweet, wholesome stream of a living fountain for such an uncertain compound of nastiness and vermin? Um, What a graphic description. And that was the emotion, that was the idea that Jeremiah was tapping into. What a bad exchange it is. For us to exchange what God wants to provide with the broken, diseased junk of the world. And this is something that we need to remember. And, you know, I, I wanted to, to help maybe us grasp this and remember it a little more this morning. And so, you know, if, I've had a couple people say, this tank is too small for me to be baptized in. Um, it, it, it probably is, except for some of our smallest. But, you know, here we've got this, this horse trough that is, that is holding some water. And, and this, this horse trough this morning is going to represent for us um, the stuff of this world. And, and these buckets around this horse trough represent our desire to capture um, our, our happiness, our desire to capture our purpose, um, our desire to order our lives. And, you know, when you think about it, we take this bucket and we, we dip it in, the, the, the bucket of, of stuff. 
we, we, we want some stuff, and when we spend our lives about the accumulation of stuff, we, we dip it into life and the world, and we set it up, and you know what? Immediately, it starts to drain out. You know, I had a friend that lived in, when I lived in Texas, and he, he really wanted to have a, a pickup. And he talked about this pickup, and he really wanted the pickup, and he thought that when he got the pickup, everything would be good. And you know what he told me after he bought the pickup? He looked in the rear view, and there was no boat behind it. Um, that's just what happens to us with stuff, right? We, we get some of it. We want more of it. Why? Because it's a broken bucket. It's leaking out. Love. We dip it in. We want love. We want acceptance from people. We, wanna, we want that in our lives, and yet when we fill our lives only with the acceptance of others, it just begins to leak out. Why is that? Well, because someone can accept you this minute and then reject you the next. The group of friends you compromise for today may not love you tomorrow. The boyfriend that you are compromising for today may be with someone else tomorrow. When we put our stock in love and the approval of others, it just begins to run out. Experience. When we chase after experience, vacations, sexual experience, whatever it is, it's never enough. Why is that? Because when we pursue those things, there's holes all through it. We consume that time, we consume that moment, and it, it just begins to drain. And you know what, as I was thinking about today and thinking about this, this idea and this illustration, um, I had another bucket, and, and my, my grand thought was I would take this bucket and I would fill it up, and I would say, look at this. This is the bucket that Jesus is for us. It fills up and it never goes anywhere. But you know what? That's not what the passage says. The passage does not describe Jesus as a bucket. The passage does not describe God as a bucket, does not describe God as just that which doesn't run out and empty because it's a bucket without any holes in it. You know what it describes God as? What does it describe God as? A fountain of living water. That means that when we are trusting in God, though our lives are broken in holes, we'll say it, our lives are broken and holy, all right? Though our lives are broken and holy, when we are trusting in God, we are connected to the fountain of living water that when we drain, he fills. And he does it again and again and again until one day he gives us a bucket that isn't broken. But in this life, we're connected to the fountain of living water. Now here's the question. How foolish is it? How foolish is it for us to spend our lives pouring our resources into a broken bucket when we could be connected to the fountain of living water. This is the question that Jeremiah was posing to God's people. This is what he was challenging them with. He was challenging them to trust in him. So what do we do with this? 
What do we do with it? I want us to quickly, I'm going to mention three things. And, and while I mention these things, I'm going to go ahead and have the band come on up. We're going to, we're going to close in song here in just a moment. But as we think about this, I would call this life application, but Bruce actually has that trademarked, and I'd owe him lunch this week, and I'm not going to do that. So, um, but, but what are we going to do with this message? What are we going to do with it? Um, I think there's three things that we need to do. The first one is this. We need to recognize. We need to recognize. Recognize the good things in our life that we tend to make ultimate things. As I was talking, no doubt there was something or some things. You know, our house, our lives are a house with many rooms. There's idols in all of them. What are the, the places, the areas, the things where we tend to eBay our faith? We tend to sell out God for someone else's junk. We need to recognize where those things are. The second thing we need to do is we need to remember We have a bunch of buckets up here on the, on, on the middle of the room. When you see those buckets, I want it to just be a reminder. I was talking to, to Brian Hayes about this. He knew somebody that had a broken vase that he sat on his back porch as a continual reminder of the fact that the things of the world don't hold weight. Whatever you need to do in order to be reminded. Because we've got these areas that are idols. That, that's, that's common to being human, but, but we need to, to think ahead. Where does that go? Where does that experience, if we chase it, it ultimately will not provide what we hope it will? This stuff will eventually break or we'll get tired of it. When the, the, this person that we're seeking the approval of may reject me tomorrow. When we put all of our hope in those things, it's a broken bucket. The water will run out. And the third thing that we need to do, we need to recognize, we need to remember the third thing is we need to replace. You know, our lives, our bodies were created to have a God. They just were. God created us to live in relationship with him. Sin has distorted that. Sin has disrupted it. But in order for us to relate to, to live life, we're going to find something that will order our lives for us. When we find the idols of our lives, we need to replace them. Not just ignore them, not just run away from them, but replace them with something better. Not with a broken bucket, but with a fountain of living water. And that is found only in Jesus Christ. This is what we have found as we have turned to him in salvation. We have found that our good works, our good deeds are a broken bucket. Therefore, we need his fountain of living water, his fountain of forgiveness to cover us and cleanse us and make us new. And we need to take that same attitude of faith and apply it throughout our lives. Um, we're going to reflect as we close, as we sing this song enough. And we're going to be singing about how we're recognizing that all of our God is more than enough.